I'm Dean Schraffnagel, Senior Deputy Editor of Annals of the American Thoracic Society. The February issue of Annals of the American Thoracic Society commemorated the 50th anniversary of the Surgeon General's report on smoking and health. For the podcast today, I am speaking with Dr. Jonathan M. Samet, Professor and Flora L. Thornton Chair, Department of Preventive Medicine, Keck School of Medicine of the University of Southern California, and Director of the Institute for Global Health, also from the University of Southern California in Los Angeles. Dr. Samet was a main author of the 50th anniversary edition of the Surgeon General's Report on Smoking and Health and has published many articles on the effects of smoking and health. Dr. Samet wrote the feature article in the February annals entitled The Surgeon General's Report and Respiratory Diseases from 1964 to 2014. Welcome, Dr. Samet. Thank you, Dean. Glad to be uh, here and talking with you. And on January 11th of this year, there was a great deal of fanfare over the 50th anniversary of the Surgeon General's Report on Smoking and Health. Could you tell me a little bit about the celebration in the report, and what did the report find? Certainly. So this was a notable anniversary, January 11th. In fact, it was a Saturday, just as was the January 11th when the report was released. That was a deliberate choice because there was concern about the impact of the report on the stock market because of the importance of tobacco in the economy at the time. We uh, didn't quite have our report released on the 19th, but the next week, the report I'm sorry, the report was not released on the 11th, but it was released the uh, following week. This is a lengthy, gold-covered report that reviews the history of the reports and their impact, updates in a very extensive set of chapters the dangers of smoking with regard to both active smoking and exposure to secondhand smoke. And then in what are really critical chapters looking forward, the uh, report addresses what we know about tobacco control and what we should be doing looking to the future. Could you tell me a little more about the meaning and influence of the original report and those Surgeon General reports through the years? Yeah, certainly. There's some really important features of the initial report. In many ways, it set a model for evidence-based public health. It comprised a systematic review. There was a, a neutral group of experts who provided the evaluation and synthesis of the evidence. A set of criteria were established for gauging whether the evidence was sufficient to judge smoking as a cause of lung cancer and other diseases. And importantly, at its, in, in reaching its conclusions, the uh, report found that smoking caused lung cancer actually in men. It caused chronic bronchitis. It increased all-cause mortality. The report then said, this is a problem of sufficient magnitude that something should be done about it. And I think since then, this has been sort of the way that these reports have proceeded. They gather the scientific evidence. They say how strong it is on particular topics, whether disease causation or policy impact. And then they become a platform for decision-making. And I, I think that tradition has been very important and maintained in subsequent reports. Since the uh, first report, there have been 31 additional reports, so a large number of reports. And just to highlight a, a few, 1972, the first time that the problem of secondhand smoke was discussed. 1979, when Joseph Califano was head of the Department of Health and Human Services, a massive report that served as his platform for saying we really needed to move more aggressively. I actually point out that 1984, the topic was chronic obstructive lung disease. We weren't 
so much using the term COPD at the time, but this was the first report I contributed to, and it was all focused on smoking and lung. 86, a particularly notable report while Everett Koop was Surgeon General. This went on secondhand smoke and voluntary smoking, concluding that inhaling uh, secondhand smoke caused lung cancer in non-smokers. And also noting that you can't simply separate smokers and non-smokers in the same airspace and protect the non-smokers. So another important report, 1988, nicotine addiction. 2000, a review of uh, policy and what works and what we know. 2004, back to active smoking and the consequences and a major updating to the list of diseases caused by smoking. And 2006, really firming up the evidence on secondhand smoke. That report came along at a time when many of the states were going smoke-free and it was widely used as the evidence foundation for saying that action was needed. 2010, a report of interest to many people in the respiratory community that covers the mechanisms by which smoking causes disease, sort of a, a good starting point for those who want to get immersed in the topic. 2012, very important, and again, large report on youth, impact of media, impact of movies, how kids get started, the origins of nicotine addiction. So another landmark report, and, and now we're up to 2014 where we covered a lot of territory. Wow. And as you said, then, this now as a physician or a scientist, we take it for granted that reviews of the literature are systematic and weigh the evidence. But 50 years ago, that was quite pioneering. Yes, I think it was. And I, I, in fact, I'm not sure when the first systematic review was done within the health sciences. It's a tradition that goes back, in fact, long into science. But to my way of thinking, this was one of the first. Actually, interestingly, there was even a meta-analysis included. The results of seven prospective or cohort studies were pooled in one table in, in the New England Journal the week the report was published at the anniversary date, there was a nice presentation of these data in sort of a conventional forest plot showing, in fact, that, you know, there was a meta-analysis embedded right in the report as well. Well, could you go a little bit more about the influence of the reports? And reports themselves have been legendary, but I think when you mentioned that they become a platform for advocacy, and I think for people who are interested in promoting tobacco cessation, we look to the Surgeon General's reports for many of this evidence, information, and, and actually advocacy for the, the, the press and, and so forth also looks to these. Right. So, so a few comments. I mean, just, of course, going back to 1964, when that report came out, there was really nothing in place for tobacco control. So some of the things that followed, uh, pack warnings, the requirement that there be, if you will, health messaging delivered on television, because, of course, at the time, the airways were full of ads for cigarettes. And in fact, eventually, uh, there was the ad ban because uh, the tobacco industry was happy to give up having to support, you know, sort of the counter-marketing that was required. So, you know, the first report certainly generated action. The 86 report was, uh, along with a few other documents, you know, part of the critical foundation for moving forward with smoke-free places. Finding the nicotine uh, and smoking generally or addicting was important. I think it, you know, pushed forward the idea that we needed to regard 
the smoker as someone who is addicted to a drug and think more strongly about therapeutic approaches and the role of physicians. Uh, just to backtrack uh, for a moment, because you mentioned advocacy, you know, certainly, you know, the 86 report, the 2006 reports were very important for those who are advocating for clean indoor air. I mean, they really provided the scientific foundation for saying we just shouldn't have to breathe air that's contaminated with carcinogens and toxins. I think the, the evidence, you know, be a little more contemporary the evidence on smoking in movies and youth has been very important for those who have tried to pressure our film industry to not allow what is sometimes gratuitous smoking in films. There may be a place uh, historically where smoking was, in fact, highly prevalent and should be represented to portray something carefully, a World War II movie, for example. But certainly in more contemporary pictures, it's not as though young people are just sort of smoking throughout their daily lives or in their relationships. So the report on youth would, for example, be has been very valuable in, uh, in that area. Yeah. The, uh, the idea of glamorizing uh, tobacco use. Yes, certainly. And in the uh, February issue of the Annals of the American Thoracic Society, there are several other articles. One of those is on nicotine, and another one is on electronic cigarettes. Do you want to comment on some of those? Uh... Well, certainly. I'm, I'm happy to do that. I mean, and, you know, in part, I'll go back to the 2014 report for a moment. One of the chapters is, in fact, Chapter 5 is on nicotine, and the reason in part that it's covered is that clearly the risks of cigarettes putting aside addiction come from the inhalation of, you know, this rich combustion mixture that is full of carcinogens, it's highly oxidizing and dangerous. The harm reduction question of whether e-cigarettes, which deliver nicotine plus, as far as we know, some other contaminants and you know, in some products will offer a lower risk. And uh, this is uh, an important debate story about harm reduction. So there then the question becomes, well, if a smoker were to switch from a combusted product to uh, e-cigarettes, what are the risks of inhaling nicotine? So in Chapter 5 of the 2014 report, we devote a lot of attention to that. And as you point out, that's also covered in an article by Neil Benowitz, as I, as I recall. The questions about toxicity of nicotine by itself begin, in fact, with the unborn child, the fetus, and the effects of nicotine on the developing lung and brain. You know, continue on into adolescence even where there's some concern about nicotine exposure and neurocognitive development um, in addition to addiction. And moving into adulthood, concerns about cardiovascular consequences of nicotine. And there's been discussion about its role in carcinogenesis as well of somewhat complicated story. And again, one covered in the 2014 report. This concern about nicotine, of course, gets at the e-cigarette question where the e-cigarettes are not cigarettes and nothing burns, but a vapor is delivered that contains nicotine, at least in most of these products. So the harm reduction question for individuals is the comparative risks of smoking versus e-cigarettes. The broader public health question is what will the availability of e-cigarettes, what are the consequences for children and youth will some start their nicotine experience with an e-cigarette 
product, uh, possibly become addicted and move on to using an e-cigarette and cigarettes or perhaps just combusted cigarettes alone. That would not be a good outcome of having these available as a harm reduction strategy. Another concern on the public health side is that perhaps some people who would have quit if e-cigarettes had not been available will remain addicted and perhaps have a dual-use pattern, or perhaps some ex-smokers will be lured back to using nicotine because they think that e-cigarettes are safe. So the broader public health question and the individual harm reduction question are both important. In a sense, there's potentially some competing you know, arguments, if you will. Why not allow access to a product that reduces risk for people who would otherwise inhale dangerous smoke versus, well, what about the broader consequences of these products? Yeah. I, I, I find it difficult to condone the use of nicotine, which has a, a pretty strong toxic history on its own. I'm just going to wrap this up and ask you uh, if you have any further comments about tobacco use or tobacco control, especially as it relates to the Surgeon General's report, and maybe tell our audience where they could view a copy of the Surgeon General's report or your uh, report from 1964 to 2014. Sure. So a couple of comments. I mean, one, um, I mean, I think everybody who is involved in respiratory health issues is immediately caught up in the, the tobacco story. And, you know, the 64 report, I think, stands as a landmark worth looking at and for what it did and how it was done. All the Surgeon General's reports are available now online, and you can go to the Surgeon General's website or the Office on Smoking and Health of CDC to get them. Our new report, which I will say has, in the printed form, 900 pages of text and additional 500 pages of tables and figures plus a web supplement, is available as an ebook. So you can download it onto whatever device you want and take a look at it. Again, I think this should be of special interest to the respiratory health community. And to to comment for a moment, uh, the ATS, through its Tobacco Action uh, Committee, has a great deal of work in progress. And I think, uh, you know, ATS can be an important partner along with the other organizations that are concerned with, you know, trying to bring this epidemic to an end as quickly as possible. Very good. I might also add that there is an executive summary, which is rather easy to read, and you can't get through all of the rest of the pages. So this is Dr. Dean Schroffner. Again, I'm at a podcast for the February issue of the Annals of the American Thoracic Society, which commemorates the Surgeon General's report. My guest today was Dr. Jonathan Samet, and thank you, Dr. Samet, and thank you to the audience. Okay, great. Thanks. Great to talk with you.